This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Hey Jesse. Hello Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, how are you doing? I'm alright, can you hear me very well? I can hear you just fine, perfectly, in fact. Um, sorry about the slight delay, but you know what it's like day after day, Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. That's, that's all right, that's all right. I can understand that. Okay. Fabulous. Oh, well, so glad to finally have you on the show. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization and uh, what you're passionate about? Oh, okay, so uh, my name is Jesse Adeniji, and I wear two hats. Um, I work for... Um, Myself, I have a company called GCMA Consulting. Um, so what we do is we help small businesses uh, to understand branding, to understand marketing, and to understand uh, innovation, you know, space, and what they can do, you know, to to help their businesses. And I also work, you know, in innovation management, especially research for innovation, with um, a research company called Studio Into. I'm the African lead, you know, in that in this organization, and it's a fantastic organization of uh, people from different backgrounds. You know, we've got the head office in London, and we are representing over 56 countries, you know, around the world. So wow. the way it works is that we have what you call local experts who are also very, you know, forward-facing, innovative researchers. Uh, so if we got um, a brief, you know, that comes in from any part of the world. So we are able to have um, the local views working with the guys in London. And so anything that has to do with Africa, that's, you know, that's my remit. I've also worked on other European, you know, briefs. Uh, so, uh, but it's good in a way in the sense that um, the uh, founder, um, Joanna Brassett, yeah, uh, she has this uh, idea of a lean, you know, mean uh, working force. And she also wants to understand cultural contexts of everything, you know, so it's not um, Eurocentric views of things that are happening. So it's a fantastic, fantastic group of people to work with. Um, here in London, I sit with, um, uh, the business director is Chinese. Uh, the lead, you know, director, it's um, English. Um, the office director, it's Spanish. Uh, so we've got about seven to eight different journals as a um, um, Polish background. So um, um, they, they have this idea um, that I really love is to look at things in detail and in context. So you bring a brief, we're able to look at it in detail. Okay, this is what it means for you, for your organization, for the space that you're working in, you know, for, for your marketing, you know, and your target groups. Okay. Um, how does that work in, in the wider context? 
you know, of competing systems and forces, where do you see yourself? So we're able to, you know, zoom in and then pull back and understand the total context and we're able to, you know, share information with you. And because we are from multidisciplinary, you know, context, like I'm, um, I worked as a um, copywriter uh, in advertising and then I moved on to be um, a planner and then I moved on to be innovation manager you know, I did all of all sorts. Then I work with people who are uh, service design experts. I work with people from arts. You know, I work with people from different you know fields. So we're able to bring all these skills, you know, together in one place. You know, to look at briefs from a different perspective. So, uh, so this is what I do. And um, like we were discussing the other day, we're already um, COVID proof, in the sense that um, we work, you know, uh, remotely. And then we go to the office when we need to. So when um, we had the issue of lockdown, um, it was easy peasy for us, basically. <laughs> but we were already used to. You were already there. You were already well, there. You, you, we were you, already you, in that future. It's almost, like you, it's almost like you predicted it and you, you were ready for it before it even happened. <laughs> well, you know, um, when we had the pre-meeting, I told you about the uh, future of uh, what I call, what they call block time in science, right? So it's the, basically the idea that the past, you know, the future and the present are all the same. They are happening within, you know, different spheres, uh, but they're happening, you know, right now. We might not be able to see it. What is going to happen in the future? Someone is already doing it now. What is happening now is something that somebody has done in the future. So um, if we pay attention, and that's what I'm passionate about, I'm passionate about liminal spaces. Things don't just happen on, up upon us, you know. Um, if something is going to happen, if you take the case of Nokia, for instance, you take the case of BlackBerry, if you take the case of Kodak, um, they already they have um, uh, examples of things that people have gone through that path before. It was just because um, they were not um, conscious, conscious. So that is the word, is a key word. If we are conscious. We know that what we need is already in play. We know that the future is already in play. We know that the past has something to do with the present. So it's all the same to people who are conscious. And how do we build consciousness? Uh, consciousness is not only something we build within, right? Um, it's something that uh, is like neural networks. We think we have intelligence. But when it's not mixed with other people, with other intelligence that are floating around us or things that are happening externally, then we don't have consciousness. That's exactly how it is because you have systems that abuse your consciousness. You know, okay, you wake up in the day. Okay, once you wake up, you woke up this morning, as soon as you open your eyes, so many things are happening at the same time if you pay attention. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're getting signals from your brain, you know, from internally. Oh, I feel okay. Do I need a cup of coffee? You know, I need to get this done. I need to get that done. You're taking coffee. You're looking at the environment. You want to cross the road. You look right. You look left. So all of these things are in play. And um, so for me, um, liminality is one area that I am very passionate about. I know that I've not de uh, defined it yet. So I'm hoping that you asked that question. And also um, how it works into um, strategy foresight, because that is my, um, that's my 
a core area in innovation strategic foresight. How do we engage with the future? You know, and uh, things, ways, mindsets, and means by which we can engage with the future. Well, fantastic. You, you, there's so much there to unpack. Let's, 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 well, the first okay. thing, this is great. You have to hold me back because, you know, I tend to bring a lot of examples and things. Yeah. Thank no, you. No, but I mean, I think that's important, especially when you're an innovator. All of these factors, I love that you're, you're, you're talking a little bit of your journey, right? And I think that's the way it works for a lot of people who are innovate in innovation. It's like you end up taking all these various paths, like crazy paths to get yeah. to innovation. But it's like each one of us who's taken, we've all taken completely different paths and we've all lived completely different realities, but they've yeah. all taken us to this same place where we're, we're thinking about the future or the past, you know, and 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 being innovative. So I, I love I love that piece of it. Plus, I wanted to start talking about maybe the first thing that you mentioned was that you said that your group, is it is it your group a bit like trend spotting where it's like you have people all over the world who are watching out for, for, for specific trends and then they share those trends among each other or how does that work? Okay, the way it works is that um, the people that are brought into the company are people who understand what they're doing. They've got talent, of course, and they have very uh, variegated experiences, you know, uh, from different parts of the world. But what we've noticed is that um, there's this tendency to bring um, thoughts and ideas that are probably Eurocentric or um, that is dominated. You have the dominant, you know, theories coming from a certain part of the world. So when you have things going on in Africa, for instance, um, you don't understand the cultural context that much. Uh, so you need somebody to be there to bring that perspective, you know, from a different view, you know, to what is going on so that you can have all the views. You can have the views that you're coming with and you can have the views of the people on the ground, right? So um, these are people that are expertly, you know, uh, picked out. So they are, um, okay, uh, Joanna herself, she is an academic. Uh, she's a visiting professor at um, uh, at a university in Germany, and um, when I went to innovation school, I, I find out that what she does is that she looks out for talent, um, and then she said, oh, "Oh, this is what we do. Um, would you like to join us?" And when uh, you finish your program and you go back to your country, um, the contact is there. So, but the good thing is that um, you're not um, you are free to choose whether to work full-time or to work part-time. So in a lot of people are, of our um, local experts- You're even innovating in the future of work because that's where, I think that's where the future yeah. of work is too. It's yeah. multiple, multiple jobs, multiple roles. And I think that's that's actually useful in bringing in, bringing in experience from multiple sources into the role. Yeah. Into this, they are one interdisciplinary and they're, they're all about multiple cultures and, um, we like Joanna right now, as um, at the beginning of COVID, she moved to Poland and there she's working from home and then she's doing a lot of um, mountain climbing and, and you know, outdoor stuff. Nice. Uh, I'm here, I'm, I have um, uh, clients that I work with at GSME Consulting. So the good thing is that I'm able to bring these experiences I have on my side of, because I work with a lot of ethnic you know, uh, minority groups uh, and businesses. So I'm able to bring that residual knowledge back into work at into. It's the same thing for uh, Johnny, for instance. It brings the Chinese experience. So he's able to say, look, 
this is what service design means, and it's got a PhD, and say, oh, oh this is what service design means in cultural, culturally in the context of Asia, and this is what it means when you come to Europe, and this is what it might mean when we go to Europe. So we've got, um, um, okay, I, I'm struggling to remember them. So we got someone who is the regional uh, lead for South America and the Ameri America as, as a whole. She's Colombian and she went off to school in Germany. And what she does is that she brings uh, the uh, cultural context of uh, uh, South America, you know, into, into. So we've worked on different projects together. Uh, so working across, you know, different cultures and different timelines and different zones actually on its own creates its own intelligence within the group. Because oh, talking is so much, you know, from this person, and that person is also, you know, as you know, so we're free to talk about so many things. So it's not a place where you don't have political views. Like a lot of organizations now are a sterile environment. There's no cross pollination of ideas. People don't want to. Yeah, it's very monolithic. There's, there's yeah, no, they don't want to no cognitive diversity. Yeah. Yeah. And once you don't have that, uh, it, we can even have diversity. diversity. If you have diversity and you don't have the freedom to bring bring your ideas to the table, that's also a stifling, you know, thing. So we've got all of this in the studio into, and I think um, one good thing about it as well is that uh, Joanna knows some of the uh, uh, projects that we need to take on, and some of the projects that don't conform with our values that we need to step away from. And knowing that basically is what keeps you know that thing you know going on. Well, I love it. Can I join? <laughs> you need, I'll you speak need to Joanna on your behalf. <laughs> Sign me up. I love the I love the concept. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing we were, you were talking about, which I I love I love the concept of it because I've read a little bit about it, but I want to get into it in a little more detail. You were talking about how different cultures view time because I know in the Eurocentric culture, you know, there's past, present, future, or future, present, past. And then, but I, I've read that other cultures, some Asian cultures and some African cultures all view time in completely different ways. Some view it, like you said, sort of blended that everything's happening at the same time. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Cause I'm fascinated with that concept. I love it. Okay. Um, cultural concepts of time, you know, for business, they are, they are really different. Um, so there was a case of um, back in the eighties and, and um, late seventies, eighties, nineties, British businesses were going to go into Asia, go into India, for instance, to do business. Uh, and it's funny because uh, during the colon uh, colonization period, uh, India was described as a jewel in the crown, you know, of Britain as a colonialist, you know. But here we are, years after independence, you're supposed to know these people very well, know the culture very well, because you actually administered it and contributed to the you know, uh, intensive differences within that space. But what they find out is that uh, once they, uh, they want to go for meetings, if somebody comes in late, so that is a no-no for them. So they already start starting off their relationship on a bad footing. Um, right. But in India, just like in Africa, the head honchos, you know, the powers that be, they're the ones who come in last. You know, for them, it's not a question of time. It's a question of importance. And right. um, if you come in and if you say that you are not, 
free with them, you, you, you're not you know, on their level, they also take offense. So when you have two organizations taking offense against one another, you know, um, you're gonna miss out on a lot of things. Uh, innovation is not able to take place because the cross-pollination of ideas is not there. So you're already forming ideas about yourselves. So, uh, but in terms of uh, uh, time, uh, present, past and future, uh, future and space, I think that has to do with how we look at things, how we view things, how, how we perceive what is going on. So uh, that's why I think um, liminality is such um, a good way, you know, of looking at the future. For, for instance, um, um, when we talk about uh, time, um, in the sense that I'm trying to bring it up uh, about everything happening at the same time. Okay, I, I, will, I will give you what the example that I gave you before. That is the car industry. Take the car industry, for instance. So today, all the um, crazes about electric cars, electric cars is going to save the world and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. But, if it was, you know, that we'd be... <laughs> Yeah, the end of the it's the end of the world, right? I mean, that's not. But when you look at um, um, historicity, and this is from a, a scholar called Michel Foucault. There's quite a lot of crazy French, you know, scholars that I really love. I love them so much because they provide context for what is going on. Um, Michel Foucault is one of those. You have uh, Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze. You have Felix Gattari. Um, but going back to the issue of um, cars, at the beginning, we have all forms of energy, right? We had electric energy, we had electric cars, we have steam energy, we have steam, you know, steam engines, they, they were the one who power, powered the trains. And we also had the combustion engine, right? Yep. So if you said to me today that uh, Elon Musk is saying, oh, I'm doing something new, this is innovation for me. This is great. This is fantastic. It's never been done before. You're not paying attention. What happened? <clears throat> and why you should understand um, what a liminal space is, which I will define later, is that uh, there are certain factors that made the combustion engine what we uh, adopted that became the dominant thinking and the dominant impact, that had a dominant impact at the point. It was because, okay, we found a new source of energy, which was petrol. Uh, crude oil. Uh, that happened in Texas, you know, and then immediately that happened, you, you found that uh, there was the democratization of, um, of assets, and the assets actually created the, 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 the environment for combustion engine to win was filling stations. So if you had a car that is powered by petrol, you can drive 50 miles and then you can put more petrol in your car and you drive 100 miles. But we did not have uh, charging points for electric cars, so they were dumped. And steam engine was not, um, was not really efficient, so we left it behind. So, so it, wasn't the battery, it wasn't the battery technology that kept electric cars from being behind, it was the infrastructure. So it the was infrastructure, yeah. Because you couldn't really build, because the infrastructure wasn't built to be able to allow electric cars. But once you have an electric infrastructure built, now it's much yeah. easier for electric cars to survive. And one of the things is that you were saying is that I think people forget that. They think that the reason why the internal combustion engine 
was, you know, it, it was because of the energy it created, not because of the infrastructure that was behind it. I mean, the whole system needs to support itself. Otherwise, it's not going to go anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And that is really critical in the sense that um, we are going through what, what I call transitions and transformations all the time. And um, the companies and businesses that understand this, uh, they understand uh, ways of thinking and the systems will perform much better than those who don't. Um, Nissan is doing so well with um, electric cars. You know, they launched Leaf in the UK and is the adoption for Leaf was, you know, um, a lot deeper and better. Yeah, we have actually, we have, I see Leafs everywhere here. Leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised you know because it was the only alternative. It was the only lower cost alternative to Tesla because Tesla is everywhere. But yeah. the reality is, is if you're going to spend money on a Tesla, you really need to spend like a hundred thousand dollars. And who has a hundred thousand dollars to spend on a car? Whereas the Leaf was a much more reasonably priced. I mean, obviously it had a shorter, um, it had a shorter, uh, what do you call it, right drive range. Yeah. But it still was, it was in the right ballpark for just the regular regular person to be able to buy a car. They, they didn't have to have a Tesla. And so yeah. the Leaf was very popular here. It still is. Yeah. And they, they also understand what we said about uh, what happened in the past. So they understood that you need infrastructure that is uh, social to get this on, on the road. So they set up in, in the UK, for instance, at the O2, there's a popular place in South London. Uh, they call it the O2. So it's, big exhibition space and they've got this innovation center there so I, I went there year on year because that's what you did as um like i said if you want to be um innovation manager or thinker you need to be out there you can't sit you know behind screens and think oh i'm just going to do desktop research and get this so uh, what do we oh, yeah, exactly. field work is very important is it very, it's like, because of COVID we haven't been able to do it but I mean I love getting out and amongst people and then if you think about it it's it's the, the big problem with what we're doing now that this is all intentional communications right yeah. we have to know that we're going to talk to each other whereas yeah. before we you could be in any location and you could overhear something or there'd be some kind of serendipity happening or there'd be some juxtaposition that you just you would notice because you happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right people around you and we, we've lost all that so i hope we can get that back pretty soon because i think no, that was we really have to. yeah we have exactly. to i, I don't I, i'll get back to you i don't subscribe to you let me finish the leave then and i'll come back to this um yeah sorry about that they had this innovation center, they, you get there, it's a very fantastic place. But what caught my attention was, in spite of all these technological um, uh, gizmos that they've got everywhere, they had this um, screen where you could actually, they can show you your charging points, right? So if you are um, an office worker, you, are, you don't have a lot of uh, money to, to play around with, you don't want to be charging your phone on your house electric, right? So what they've done is that they did not just, innovation for them did not just stop at, oh, we were producing these cars and we're getting to people's hands they can charge in their own houses. No, they knew that they had to work with the local authorities. So they had to work with, so when we're doing personal analysis, so people think, oh, personal analysis that hold. You see, all of these instruments is how you use them and the knowledge that you have about them. So the political, beat about it is very important. So they worked with uh, local authorities to say, oh, how much of these um, um, car parks 
can we reserve for electric charging? Mm-hmm. And I could see that year on year, those things were multiplying. So if you're living within that area, so the barrier to taking up a leaf and driving a leaf is already been broken from that point. You can look at that and say, oh, this is where I do all my, 90% of all my commute. And there are about 1,000 charging points. And this works for me. Do you understand what I'm saying? So yep, that yep, yep. Uh, is number one to the object. So I find that, okay, yeah, you can, uh, for me, invention is just the first step on the ladder of innovation. So innovation management, actually, innovation anywhere, for me, is you're solving a problem. And when you're solving a problem, what you're doing is that you are mixing different tools, old and new. You are recreating them and you are reforming them uh, to, to do something totally new. So you are using existing you know, things, existing technology, existing thought patterns, existing thought processes, existing uh, ways of doing things, ways of saying things. And you're kind of like, okay, what if we do it in this way? What if we mix A with B or C and D? What do we get that is new? For me, that is real innovation. And that is what a lot of people and a lot of companies don't understand. Oh, there's artificial intelligence. Oh, let's go for it. Oh, now- <laughs> It's always the technology, people. right? They always yeah. think, oh, we got to bring that technology in, but it's not necessarily the technology. It's more of a cultural change than anything else, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. a combination of things. It's not just that. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, let me go to uh, liminality, for instance, you know. Yes, please. Uh, go ahead. That was my next topic. So jump in. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is my passion because I believe that if anyone cracks this area, they would have cracked most things. Where uh, uh, where things come from? Where does disruption come from? Uh, so when we were in school, they would tell us about disruption, you know. It can be disrupted. And they give listed examples and stuff. I'm not done with just understanding how things happen, you must understand why they happen and what are the yep. things that makes them to yep. happen. So for um, basically, um, liminality is just a threshold period, a time of transition and transformation, a betwixt and in between structures. You know, it means that you are no longer in one place, but you are not yet in the place you're going. So you are like stuck in the middle. So let's give an example to that. So let's take it, um, somebody who's reaching puberty, you know, um, a teenager who's getting into puberty. They're not exactly uh, kids anymore, but they're not yet adults. They don't understand adult things. So in that, you know, it's like a a coming of age kind of thing. And many cultures have this, right? I mean, there's many cultures that have this, 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 this space that they have to pass through yeah. Become, yeah, from becoming a child to becoming an adult. Adult, yeah. So we yeah. see it every day. Come on, it's so commonplace. So when we left university, you, you know, you have gone to university. I've gone to university. Oh, well, enthralled, you know, well, enthralled by you know this piece of paper. Oh, I've got a degree. I've got you know that degree. So <laughs> now you got the degree, but you're not yet established in the world of work. You don't even know what you're going to do next. So that in between period. You know, what it does for you is that it kind of creates some sort of um, ambiguity, yeah? It creates some type of indeterminacy, your sense of identity dissolves to some extent, and then it can bring disorientation, right? Uh, So this is why um, um, uh, Turner, you know, there's a guy called Victor Turner. It was Van Van Gennett who uh, proposed this idea, who studied all these, you know, um, uh, cultures that, that we talk about. 
But um, um, Turner actually was able to tell us that this happens in spaces. It's, it doesn't only happen with individuals, it happens in spaces. So if you look at uh, a place called, um, between Morocco and um, Mauritania, there's a place called Western Sahara. Now, because uh, <laughs> Morocco will not admit that they are independent, and Mauritania does not now have the military and um, capability to say, oh, we can be independent. That state is in a liminal space. Nobody knows what's going to happen. They don't know what their future is about. So, okay, the best example of a liminal space is what we've got now, COVID. So we entered yeah. COVID. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew what our exit strategy was going to be about. Like, so, But what we know is that we are making a transition. We know that our sense of identity, oh, I wake up in the morning, I go to work, I have everything fixed. I've got a mortgage that I have to pay. Oh, suddenly you realize that, oh, I've got to work remotely. Oh, I cannot pay my bills. So it's a, it's a place of terror. You know, you, are, you have this terror. So how are the, all these things going to work out for me? So that's, um, how, that's how all these liminal spaces are, right? It's like, it's a complete unknown. It's a full it's, of ambiguity. It's like, there's no, you, know, you don't know how to get in between, it's, it's just about, how would I say it? We know it, it's just that the structures that you know, they're like shifting and changing. And we know this in science as well. When they say mountain, mountains don't move, it's a lie. Mountains move, depending on- just Very, uh, very slowly. <laughs> yeah, very, very slowly, but they do move. <laughs> the same thing happens in our lives. It happens in political lives, geopolitics. So how on earth did we end up uh, with uh, um, the Chinese becoming um, the factory of the world. 60 years ago, you could not have predicted that. I wonder if we end up with uh, Korean businesses uh, now trying to outdo, uh, if you look at what um, Hyundai is doing now, they're kind of like looking at Toyota and say, oh, we can take you guys on. So things are shifting. So for the Toyota guys, they're, they're saying like, oh, wait, Hyundai is doing so much. Suddenly, we're not the Toyota, we're not. It was the same way when Toyota was going to come into the States. It was the GM cars, it was all of that. They are all these uh, uh, gas guzzlers because you've got Texas, you've got the oil industry. Uh, fuel was cheap. So all the American companies were like, okay, you know what? We're gonna produce cars uh, that has muzzles and power and all of that. So in that space, they, they kind of like did not have the intelligence to understand what was going on. Always, something is always brewing underneath, in yep. between the structures, yep. in between the cracks. So it, it so happens to be, that's why things are connected. That's why you should discuss politics, social life, ethics, economics, in office, within your teams, within your groups. They did not realize that a new set of young workers, people who did not have as much money to throw around were growing and they were starting to you know, grow in large numbers. Once they reach a certain threshold, what were they looking for? They were looking for reliability. They are looking for something that could save them money on their foil. And that was how Toyota got into America. And before you yeah. knew it, everybody says, okay, initially, it, it, any new idea is always met with derision. So they are, you're driving it. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's not a good car. But today, everybody's driving Toyota. Now, Toyota is looking over it's shoulders. And everyone's driving a Hyundai now. I mean, you look around, <laughs> it's like, if it's not Hyundai or Kia, it's it's like, it, we're, we're surrounded. It, it's like, this is the, in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's yeah. Tesla, 
Hyundai, Kia, and everything else is third, fourth, fifth. Yeah, because, um, you know, um, it is that way because everything has been designed that way, right? Um, by nature, uh, because what we know from the sciences is that um, the second law of thermodynamics um, is that disorder is the end of everything. So um, you find that companies that, that do tend to fail, uh, they have high entropic profile and the ones that you know, are able to stay the course, those ones have low entropic profile you know, as to what is going on around them. So in terms of um, what we consider liminality, um, there's uh, a guy who actually said, you know what, we live in um, a continuous liminality. So if you look at uh, the, the pace of, take the last hundred years, when we had the first revolution, we just have a mechanized, you know, way of doing things. So it was slow initially. And then we had the computers, you know, came along. We had the second one. Uh, so we used to have these massive big computers, the one I had in my house back in the days. You have to learn coding. I mean, it's not coding, they call it language, you know, some, some kind boat, of language. Boat anchors, right? I remember the boat anchors. Yeah, 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 thank you. And then you have to like, you know, do all of that. Then you, suddenly, then you start to have all these pieces and then we moved away from that and we had, we, we had um, mobile phones. Now it's mobile phones and in the future, We'll, pr we'll probably might have to throw our mobile phones away. You know, it might be something in our, in our you know, physical body. Augmented that. reality glasses, right? Yeah, Augmented yeah, reality exactly. glasses, that's where yeah. we're going. So for, for, for people, for this is why people need to take this seriously, the concept of liminality. So the thing is that um, the structures are collapsing faster than we're able to put um, some sort of repetitive uh, balance to it. So um, it's happening faster and it's furious and it's relentless. And this is not new. There's a guy called um, Zygmunt Powerman. I think he died about two years ago. So he wrote uh, something about uh, liquid modernity. And it, it, it says that the forms of the social structures, you know, uh, that limit indiv individual choices, institutions that get repetitions of routines, patterns of acceptable behavior, you know, are not expected and they can no longer keep their ships for long because they decompose and met faster than the time it takes to cast them. And once they are, you know, and once they are cast them to set. So if you look at uh, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, we had um, national boundaries. It was difficult to move money around. To come to this epoch where we, we can send money anywhere, we can move money around. It took the globalists, you know, uh, the globalists and the corporations to say, okay, oh, we can, what they were doing basically was that they had to break down these structures of society. And in breaking down these structures of society, they create, of course, is a natural cause. Something is going to follow. They created this um, liminal, you know, spaces. They created these liminal feelings, you know, and we, 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 we found that the structure, government could no longer guarantee a lot of things for us. And so we will now have to deal with uh, corporations and governments, you know, running things. And it's always been that, you know, friction. And the same way it, that is, when you look into the natural systems, right, you find that our systems are always colliding. How do you get your snow? It's because systems are colliding, you know, at that level. And it, it, But what we must understand, the key thing about understanding the liminal space is that as much as it can be a place of 
terror of ambiguity, of uncertainty. It's also a place for creativity. It's also a place where new things come around. So that is what um, uh, Schumpeter, you know, in the, if you read the economies, they have the, what they call the Schumpeter Reporter. Well, the guy who was the original Schumpeter in the 40s, he wrote a book and it says, uh, he predicted a gale of creative destruction. You know, it means that if some companies are not performing very well in the system, so they're not, if they have reached the end of their evolutionary process, uh, new ones are going to come, yeah, and they're going to destroy those ones. And then they also will start their own lives. So it's like the, the ball will roll, it will end, yep. and then will roll. And it has to happen. I think it has to happen. And I, I love, I love, actually, I want to dig into a little bit of what you were talking about earlier. So okay. when you said high entropic profiles, I love the, I love the, the thought process there. How can you determine that a company has high entropic profiles? Because a lot of my listeners are corporate innovators. They might be sitting there struggling against their company, trying to bring innovation into it. How can they, how can they dete detect whether their company has a high entropic profile? Okay. Um, the, the, the concept of entropy, once you pare it down, basically is atoms, you know, the building blocks of life returning to the same units, yep. you know. Everything, they, everything falls apart eventually. <laughs> so, so what we tend to do, um, what we have learned to do, so if you want to understand this, any innovator or somebody starting something, on, always go back to the basics. That's what Foucault called historicity. So you look at our lives in the cities, is constructed one precept on another one, you know, one block on another one. So what we're doing in effect is that we are creating order. So if yeah. you have a house, your garden has to be mowed every other month. Otherwise you're gonna end up with a forest. That's right. So, we can we always constantly beat back nature. We can't we can't stop it. We we have to constantly fight against it. Otherwise it'll yeah, take over. Yeah. But when you look at the societies from the Amazon, for instance, you know, or you look at primitive societies, uh, sorry for that word, uh, ancient societies, I would like to call them, because we have to learn a lot from them. They are the real innovators. So when you look at them, even the Bitcoin that we're talking about uh, has been traced back to um, some uh, ancient society who uh, lived in the, they call it Melanesia, right? And they did not have um, stones, big stones. So they'll create some form of money. So they have to swim a long way to bring stone, uh, the stones. And so they could provide the veracity and the historicity for that uh, stones. They say, oh, these stones came here at this point. So they can trace it back, the families, the lineages and all of that. So Bitcoin is basically following, you know, that thing that, okay, we can verify where this is coming from. We can understand yeah. how to So. If you look in the in the uh, Amazon or in the Andes, for instance, you find that this or Africa or Asia, you know, Asian societies, this will work with nature. They don't work against it. They take what they exactly, need. exactly. So they I've understand this system. Long, long time. <laughs> yeah, they understand those systems. So if um, you when you look at um, how um, the, state, uh, the tech startup you know environment happened in America. It happened the same way. So uh, people will say, okay, you know what? Let's come together. Let's look at what has not been done. Let's look at the system, then let's change it. So they have this uh, thing about bringing um, uh, a, a kind of, it's not 
organizing order, right? Um, so when everybody has gone into this high entropy, that means they are so organized to the point that there's nothing new coming in again. So once that is not, there's no new ideas, no new inflows of thought processes, no new inflows of engaging with the old system. So they are bound to be uh, undone by a certain, a certain you know, system. So if, when you look at Blackberry, for instance, it was everything to us in you know, all of that time. So, but they were like, okay, we're gonna keep within ourselves. Um, we want our messaging system to be just for Blackberry. We want to be insular, you know, and you know, that's it. And suddenly you had these guys with WhatsApp, you know, we had all of that messaging, but they had it. They had exactly what we needed. They, it was even better with BlackBerry because why? You could protect your identity. You know, privacy mean a lot to us. And yeah, exactly. I love my BlackBerry. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, but what happened? It was because of the high entropy profile that they've got. They, are, they were not dabbling. They are not mixing. They are not absorbing intelligences from other you know areas to say this is what the future might look like. But so is it is it like fluidity then? Because it sounds to me like you're talking about sort of like a really monolithic state where they're not yeah, allowing yeah. external influences, and they're like they're not being fluid. They're like you know when when the, when the waves of entropy and and sorry the waves of innovations crash against them, they're just like staying static, and that's what they have. They have to flow. They have to be fluid. Yeah, yeah. they're they're not so, going to um, bringing in the African view into that. Um, um, I was invited to Leicester University to talk about resilience, for instance. And I was, how am I going to get my point across? So it was my mom. My mom was like the first philosopher that I had. So she will say something like, uh, can I say it in Yoruba language? Uh, she will say, no So what that means is that, you know the baby reed plant? The baby reed plant is always yeah. caught in the crosses of um, of contrary winds, the contrary winds is a, so. When you see a baby reed plant, you think it's going to fall off. You think it's going to be mauled, you know, by all that wind, you know, coming through. But no, the strength of that baby reed is actually in the fact that it's been moved to the sides, you know, sideways. It's being actually caught in the crosshairs of those winds, so it becomes it gains the strength from that. So when you gain your strength from that, it was the same that what I just explained to you now is what Nassim Taleb, you know, was you know describing as anti-fragility. So it's saying that the um, opposite of fragility is not robustness, it's not being robust. So when you see companies that have high entropic profiles, they're robust. Oh, we're, we're on the ground, we cannot be moved, we are too big to fail. We hear these words every day. Oh, please, yeah, I know. <laughs> But when you see what he's describing, what um, Taleb was saying is that, look, you have these stressors. So what he calls stressors is the crosswinds, you know, uh, the, 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 the violent winds that are blowing, you know, things are happening this way. This, this system is moving. So he mentioned something about being adaptive, adaptive mindsets. So uh, you need, technology is one thing. I believe that all these uh, talk about artificial intelligence, um, uh, quantum computing and all of that. We have to do, uh, if we don't have the mindset to actually channel what is going on and see the gaps, you know, within the structures, 
then we are going to remain within ourselves. So when you are within yourself, you are not filtering in what is happening within your environment. That's exactly what happened. Okay, the um, CEO of Nokia, he was on TV, he cried. He said, we've done everything right, but we failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we knew where they failed. Of course they've done everything right, right? You know where they failed? Nokia, um, at that time I was living in Nigeria. Nigeria is about 150 something million people then, right? Mm-hmm. Almost everyone loved the Nokia. If you don't have Nokia, Nokia was durable. You know, Wait, they, you were, they were the preeminent phone manufacturer at one point. Yeah. You know, everybody had, had Nokia phones. So they had 1 billion people using Nokia. So they thought, oh, we got these numbers, these numbers. So on the face of statistics alone, and this is, I'll come back to why research is important. On the face of statistics, they were in a solid position and a place. Nothing could move them. They were like the mountains I mentioned, unmovable. But they were not listening. They were not understanding certain things that, okay, within that liminal space, there were inventors, there were people, there were researchers, there were philosophers who were saying, oh, we need something that is smart. We're talking about smartphones. We're talking about connect, interconnected world. Yep. They were not listening to that. They would listen to it. They did some research, but they felt that, oh, we need a percentage of our market to be dedicated to smartphones. But what happened eventually in the marketplace, smartphones became the norm. So smartphones becoming the norm actually, you know, uh, took them out of the game. And if you look at the success of, of Apple, for instance, in that area, it was the fact that they were in tune with what is happening with all the structures within the system. They understood the liminal environment. They were not the first to create the best smartphones. It was Trio. It was an American company called Trio. I had yeah. that phone. So I, had, was- I had a 652. <laughs> I love that phone. That thing was amazing. I spent the <laughs> fortune on I spent a fortune to get that phone. And it was there I noticed that they were the first. Okay, what made smartphones smart? It was actually the army of these independent app producers, inventors. Exactly. It's the ecosystem. If if, if they provided all of the apps, if Apple provided all of the apps, it would have been a failure. But opening up the ecosystem for other people to build applications for it is the thing that pushed it over the edge, I think. You're right. So when you look at that, uh, you, you, you see that um, Trio also, they had the right technology. They had the right um, understanding of the liminal space, the right, the right ecosystems, but they didn't take advantage of it because they were seeing it as, uh, okay, we want to be insular. We want to control everything. But when Apple came in, Apple did not do anything. They, you can say Apple is, oh, really innovative, blah, blah, blah. But when you pare it down, you find out what it did was an understanding of that liminal space and they had the right kind of intelligence to go after this. And so they uh, said to the application you know, guys, oh, we're going to give you your platform. You're going to be independent. We're going to make you rich. And we're going to you know, fuse our ecosystems together and we're going to produce something new. That's exactly what happened. And once they understood that, they took that learning into uh, music production business. And they were able to say, okay, that's that was where you know that iPod thing came from. So iPod is not somebody sitting down. So it's just like so. When I look at um, all of these things, it brings me back to science, natural processes. 
So um, that is what Apple has been able to do. And we have all of this around us. We have the knowledge, we have the intelligence, we have people who have said all of these things for ages, but there's no one to say, how do we get this thing done? And that's what I've been able to um, understand with my study of um, um, the liminal space. So if I, I say to uh, people who invent stuff and I say, look, you have to develop a mindset, a mindset that is called the trickster mindset. So the tricksters basically, they were like provocateurs, right? Uh, they are, uh, what they do is that they are, they always at the edge, they are testing the waters, they are crossing the lines, you know? If the lines have been defined in a certain way, you cannot go past this. This is how we do it in this place. That's high entropic value. The low entropic values are saying, no, I'm like the baby reed plant. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll move into this place, I'll move into this. So what you call these guys, the trickster, they call dabblers, they dabble. So today you find that people have, um, they are declaring billions and they don't have um, a reserve and a team. For me, it, what is innovation management in a team? Um, not a lot of them have it. Um, I've listened to several um, of the people you've interviewed. Uh, what an innovation manager is, or the innovation director, or whatever name you call it, they are tricksters. You know, remember, our job is very hard. We are seeing a future. You have to be that, on the edge. You're right. Yeah, we are seeing a future that nobody else is seeing. How do you con convince the financial officer? How do you convince the CEO? How do you convince all of that? You cannot do it by being the good guy. You but there's chaos, though. That's the thing. It's like they, they represent order. We represent chaos. And when you try to put those Thank things you. together, like, I can't stand it. I can't, I can't handle the chaos. But you have to handle the chaos because that's the whole point of the luminous space. It's chaos. It's chaotic. It, it's yeah. not. It's impossible to order. Yeah. But, so um, we, we have to look at how do we confuse these distinctions? And that is uh, the mindset. So for me, what I, I, I did, um, I wrote my dissertation at uh, Innovation Management School. Um, I did it full time because I, I was really interested in what is two years. You know, that. One thing I found out is that um, a lot of people don't see research as the first point of doubling. If you want to test the waters out there, if you want to practice strategic foresight, if you want to be innovative, if you want to engage with the future, right? You need to double. And one way of doubling without damaging yourself is, you know, what they call ambidexterity. One way that you can, that is exploitation, yeah, and exploration. So what you're doing currently that makes you the money that you get, that places you where you are, you continue doing that, that is exploitation. So you can look at your narrow field and say, okay, yeah, let me keep exploiting the developments, what's coming, what's going on. But you must also have one foot in the future and say, how am I going to explore what might be coming? So exploration is, is a spectrum, right? So exploration might mean that I, should, I shouldn't dabble into this area, but you find out in a certain way and say, no, that's not the area for us. Or you could say, oh, that is the area for me. That's where we need to pay our attention to. So that is what dabbling you know, entails. But people don't um, understand that. They see, they say, oh, tricksters, oh, researchers, oh, innovation managers, kiosk people, kiosk people. We don't need that stuff. It's, it's not part of our core business, right? <laughs> yeah, but well, look at, if it's not part of, if Amazon, for I, I, the new guy who is the CEO of Amazon now, when they said, oh, um, it's going to become the CEO, 
I quickly went online and I needed to learn everything about him. So I found out that he was the guy who was a dabbler within the organization. And he was the one who said, guys, 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 what is our core competence? And it happens that our core competence is marine technology with logistics. Yeah. yeah. It was that basic. And since they did that, you find out that they set up their own logistic you know, company. So what they are creating, which I don't want to get into, there, there are two things are mapped. You see, innovation does not come from uh, efficiency. So that's what all the other guys need to understand, or the order in the court, order in the court. They, <laughs> they don't understand that. <laughs> they don't understand that efficiency, efficiency produces little or no innovation. So you've got these resources, you must manage it, you must do that. So all your mindset, all your thinking, all your ability is going towards doing that. But when you have redundancies, redundancies could be negative or positive, yeah? Um, if you have redundancy of money, you have a lot of money in your bank, you could buy certain things. You can say, okay, uh, this is going to work for me. Sometimes it's what you do that you don't know. These unseen assets that you've built up over time that somebody with a different height, that's why I say a way of you know viewing things can look at and say, hey guys, this is what our core competence is and this is where we need to go. So for me, that's innovation. And three ways are where you use these things. Um, where you collect intelligence. Um, uh, in my research, you know, back in the um, Innovation University, I, I identified this company called Arup, Arup Foresight. Uh, they are quite big, you know, a lot of the uh, landmark, you know, buildings and stuff in across the world, they, they've been part of it. But they have emerged, they are architectural and design company, and they've emerged to be the biggest foresight company in the world. You know wow. how they do that? Um, I worked with a lady called Miss Golden, and she said, um, what I was able to, I, I just opposed that with a company that was focused, you know, just based on um, foresight, okay, this is going to happen. We're going to look at everything in the environment and we're going to make a prediction. I found that there are three ways that an institution can become intelligent, right? Um, the one, the first one is called institutional or collective intelligence. See, um, in your organization, how all your experiences, you get this brief today. One thing we do at Studio Interior is that once we finish a project, we do what it's called a debrief. A debrief is just like your military, your, um, military setup. Um, you go on a mission, you come back. Once you get that debrief, it's some sort of intelligence that you need to file away and say, this is okay, um, we have all of this. And the second thing that a lot of people do not pay attention to is that when you recruit the people who work for you, they are, they are not coming from Mars or Jupiter. Yeah, yeah. They are coming from different spheres of life. How do you allow their ongoing personal intelligence to be mapped and, and, and documented? I'll tell you, um, in Europe, what they do basically is that they have this... Um, 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 platform within the it's like a social media platform but it's pictorial in certain ways so what they do is that if you've got an idea if you see something moving if you see a movement in, in, in a certain field it doesn't have to be with within what they do 
you log it. So if somebody is working in, the, in another Europe office in Germany, is able to tap into what is going on in your head <laughs> in, in London. Fantastic. Yeah. And the third, one, the third one that we don't uh, also do is what we call the collaborative intelligence, right? Collaborative intelligence is more peer-to-peer. So a lot of the time we don't understand, okay, I'm competing with these guys. Yeah. What are they doing that I'm not doing? And then you take it away from um, direct competition to lateral competition to say, in this whole field, who is doing something that is similar to ours? They may not be doing it in the way we are doing it. And that's why I look at sports. So when you look at the way sports is managed, sports has got a lot to tell us about the future and what is going yeah. to happen, about how this talent. If you want to talk about diversity, for instance, you don't need to go to MBA or Harvard. Before you go there, go to your average sports you know, club. You will see a lot of diversity and the way they work together to produce that final result is wonderful. And you can see human beings from all walks of life, different backgrounds, multinary uh, skills, you know, coming together to make this happen, both on the field and outside the field. So these so, three areas, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, uh, this is, we, we could go on for a couple more hours. And in fact, we probably should. I, I'm gonna, we should book a, a, a follow-up because we haven't even talked about some of the other things I want to cover. So uh, right. we're running out of time. So okay. is there any final things that you want to say, or uh, I'll just, I'll put your contact information in the show notes and we're oh, definitely going to have a part two or maybe even a part three <laughs> to this conversation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. Um, at least you, you're, you're, you're getting to understand my my position with this liminal space. So yeah. I know that you, you normally, you normally ask about what, do you see in the future? What is this particular? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're running out of time, unfortunately. So yeah, yeah. I just want to say is I'll send you a link, but to okay. and we'll do another session. But is there something you want to wrap up with? Okay. Well, I just want to say is that yeah, um, mindset, mindset. That the main thing. Yeah, it is not your artificial artificial intelligence. I, we can talk about what that's going to be. It's not about interconnectivity, uh, interconnectedness of things, IoT or whatever it is. It's about the mindset that we bring to the table and we can explore that, you know, in the next, you know, session. Oh yeah, definitely. And definitely. In the next session, you have to keep me on track. But you said- No, no, no. no. Be- I love this conversation. <laughs> this has been fantastic. This is exactly the kind of thing we wanted to do. So thank you so much, sir. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you a link and we'll book the next show. Oh, okay. And right. if anyone wants to get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn, Jesse Adeniji, and I'm on Facebook as that. Um, yeah. I and I'll put your I'll put your contact information in the show notes so people can get in touch with you directly. Oh, Thank you, sir. Oh, okay. Great talking with you. Thank Talk you. Great talking to you Bye. as well. Bye.